Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus declared that everyone throughout the empire should be enrolled in the tax list. The first enrollment occurred when Quirinus governed Syria. Everyone went to their own cities to be enrolled. Since Joseph belonged to David's house and the family line, he went up from the city of Nazareth in Galilee to David's city, called Bethlehem in Judea. He went to be enrolled together with Mary, who was promised to him in marriage and who was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for Mary to have her baby. She gave birth to her firstborn child, a son, wrapped him snuggly and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. Nearby shepherds were living in fields, guarding their sheep at night. The Lord's angel stood before them. The Lord's glory shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said, Don't be afraid. Look, I bring good news to you, wonderful, joyous news for all people. Your Savior is born today in David's city. He is Christ the Lord. This is a sign for you. You will find a newborn baby wrapped snuggly and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great assembly of the heavenly forces was with the angel praising God. They said, glory to God in heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. When the angels returned to heaven, shepherds said to each other, let's go right now to Bethlehem and see what's happened. Let's confirm what the Lord has revealed to us. They quickly went and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw this, they reported what they had been told about this child. Everyone who heard it was amazed and what the shepherds told them. Mary committed these things to memory and considered them carefully. The shepherds returned home, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Everything happened just as they had been told. For the word of God in scripture for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. Their eyes were watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. In a whole in the ground there lived a hobbit, the hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. You better not tell nobody but God, the color purple by Alice Walker. We slept in what had once been the gymnasium, the handmaid's tale by Margaret Atwood. The way that an author chooses to open their story is no simple thing. It's not uncommon to spend as much time on the first sentence or a few lines of a, a story or a book as they might spend on entire chapters in the same story. It sets the tone for the journey they're about to take the reader on. It can give a window into what the author believes to be the most important essence in their storytelling. A good opening hooks you and draws you in almost immediately, and, and a poor one can place the book back upon the shelf. Always assume that an author has obsessed over the opening of their story. And then I think about someone like Luke, 
who had told his story, spoken this story aloud countless times before he ever sat down to write it out. A storyteller who prized details, who wanted to tell the story and frame it in a way where everyone, everyone could access it. I think about the the crowds that he had spoken to, the the dinner table conversations, the personal one-on-one moments where he had retold once again the story of a Savior named Jesus who was born and lived and died and rose again, not just for the whole world, but also for you. When we've told a story as often as Luke undoubtedly has, that, that, that opening becomes so refined to do precisely what you mean it to. So it sets the tone and offers a clue, maybe just a clue as to where the story will lead. In the days of Caesar Augustus, these are the words that Luke chooses to begin the story of Jesus, his arrival on the earth. In the days of Caesar Augustus, what do these words reveal about Luke's story that he has to tell? Jesus enters a world where the power is unmistakable. These are the days of Caesar Augustus, after all. Jesus is born into an occupied land, just one of many territories that made up the mighty Roman Empire with a lord, Caesar Augustus, who exercised dominion over it all. Imagine being so powerful. Imagine being so powerful that time is referred to not by the year, but by your existence in it. Like, nobody is talking about this year as the days of Scott Gilliland. That'd be ridiculous. That is power. But not only does Caesar have power, Caesar also has control. The kind of control that can send common people packing in the name of registration so that this this empire can, can survey all they possess and so they can know precisely what they can expect to tax as well. And not only does Caesar have power and control, he was also relatively popular in his day. Caesar Augustus was hailed in his time as a bringer of peace throughout his empire. But the kind of peace that celebrates the lack of conflict but ignores the lack of justice, the kind of peace that means comfort for the comfortable but offers little hope to the masses who are hungry, unhoused, or barely scraping by, an an imperial brand of peace that seeks order through assimilation and obedience. Power, control, and popular. This is Caesar's world, and Jesus is just just about to start living in it. Luke heightens this tension even more almost immediately as the angels appear to the shepherds. It's it's the specific choice of words that the angel shares with them that, that may be lost on us in our 21st century church ears, but would immediately hook anyone living in Luke's first century world. Look, the angel says, I bring good news to you. Your Savior is born today in David's city. He is Christ, the Lord. He'll bring peace to all the earth. Now, a few words here matter a great deal. This good news, the angel proclaims, good news or euangelion in the original Greek, 
Good news was a term for a royal proclamation or declaration, the kind of decree that would be issued by Caesar and Caesar alone. So, so Jesus' birth is framed in this royal language. The reference to David's city is also important because the prophecy for the Jewish people was that their Messiah, the deliverer of Israel, would be a new king from the line of David, the most celebrated king in the Hebrew Bible. So not only is this a royal decree, but this is Israel's deliverance. Then the angel says, Jesus Christ is the Lord. Lord. Kurios is the word in Greek. Lord was a title reserved in those days only for Caesar himself and no one else. To be Lord was to have power and control and devotion owed only to Caesar. To assume that title for oneself would have meant nothing short of treason and would have been seen as an act of revolt and worthy of execution. And lastly, the angel says that the result of Christ's coming is peace, not just in the empire, but for all of the earth, peace. The same promise made by Caesar, though same in name only. The peace offered by God through Christ will inspire conflict, establish justice, discomfort the privileged, and offer life to the marginalized. And so this baby, this baby, is announced with royal decree, hailing from the royal line of David's deliverance, and is to be called Lord above Caesar and will bring peace to all the earth. This is not simply a baby's birth, Luke says. No, Luke is telling us that this is the birth of God's revolution upon the earth and within our hearts. As God births the Christ child into the world, God births revolution into our hearts. From Jesus' birth, Luke does not give us the chance to serve both Jesus and Caesar. The choice must be made. Either Caesar is Lord or this vulnerable, poor, and helpless infant is. Either we subject ourselves to the power and control and thinly veiled peace of Augustus Caesar or we receive the freedom and dignity and divine peace through serving Jesus. We are either a member of God's revolution, my friends, or we are watching it happen without us. Living in God's revolution means allowing the cries of the newborn babe to wake us up from our apathy, our self-consumption, our slumber of cynicism, believing that nothing will ever change. It means recognizing that regardless the empire in which we live, it is not yet God's kingdom, but God's kingdom is coming. And it's worth working for, resisting for, rebelling for. It means that in the year of a census, hear me, church, in the year of a census, we refuse to believe when Caesar says there is simply not enough in Rome for every family to be housed, every child to be cared for, every life to have quality. I want to say that I'm grateful for our own local leaders here in Dallas County, like District 12 Council Member Kara Mendelson who have engaged recently in bold strategies to use COVID relief dollars to buy hotels so that unhoused families can find shelter during and after this pandemic season. This work is possible in part because of a consistent, sustained message from Dallas County residents, many of you, who advocate for unhoused people and refuse to live in a reality where problems like homelessness simply cannot be solved. 
Living in God's revolution means holding Caesar, all of the Caesars, accountable to the kingdom of God rather than degrading the kingdom of God so that it fits into Caesar's empire. Luke's ability to turn the world upside down continues with whom he chooses as the first recruits and evangelists of this God's revolution. When we picture shepherds today, for instance, when we picture shepherds today, perhaps you imagine some men in some rather clean-looking cloths and, and a signature staff with the, with the curve and, and a picturesque feel that looks uh, something like a Thomas Kincaid painting. Or maybe you simply picture whichever child you most recently saw perform the role in a church nativity. I miss those. I look forward to ours next year. But in all likelihood, the image that we hold for the shepherds today is a far cry from the reality in which they lived, of who they were and how they were seen and treated in their day. Shepherds were considered rock bottom in the social ladder, so much so that frequently towns and cities had local ordinances banning them from entry. Shepherds were seen as liars and thieves. They weren't allowed to testify in many courts because the prevailing thought was that they were taking their sheep and looking for fields that did not belong to them so that they could graze and eat up other people's property. And in Israel specifically, the nature of the shepherd's work meant that they were perpetually unclean. They would have been unallowed to step foot into the temple and therefore kept away from encountering the presence of God. To be a shepherd was not just to be looked down upon. It was to be unseen entirely. To be so far beyond the beloved community that you begin to resemble the animals for which you care in the eyes of the townspeople. Have you ever been such an outsider that you don't even wish to be included anymore? That's who God chooses to be God's first recruits and messengers. That's who God identifies as worthy to discover the Christ child and carry the message of salvation into a world that might hear it. I find this such a helpful reminder as to where the gospel actually begins. Not with trumpets and a royal annunciation. Not, not with a sanctimonious sermon from a high priest. Who better to proclaim the good news to the poor than the poor? Who better to announce inclusion of the outcast than the outcast? Who better to speak of love and mercy and grace than the unloved, rejected, and judged? The gospel is not a royal decree or a priestly sermon. It is the lived-in truth spoken by the unclean, the overlooked, and the easily dismissed. It calls to question whose voices I listen for the gospel in my own life. If I only listen to the royal courts or the priestly temples, I'll hear trumpets and platitudes, but I'm not sure that I will have heard the gospel. But what if I listen to what if I believe the very people that I'm most likely to ignore? When the poor speak out and give witness to their truth, do I hear the gospel? When the oppressed cry out, will my defensiveness win out as I explain away all the reasons that they're likely mistaken? Or will compassion shut me up so that I might receive good news? Yes, challenging news, but good news once again. 
When people of color give voice to their truth, do I listen? Do I believe them? When women speak out and give voice to their truth, do I listen? Do I believe them? When people of different sexualities and gender identities speak their truth, do I listen? Do I believe them? When immigrants and refugees give voice to their truth, do I listen? Do I believe them? When the young and the old alike give voice to their truth, do I listen? Do I believe them? I have to remember that in Luke's story, I'm not the shepherds, and I'm not Joseph. I I might be one of the donkeys in the stable, but most likely I'm one of the many in Bethlehem who had shut my walls to the shepherds in the past, who had laughed at jokes about them behind their backs, who had pinched my nose as I passed by them on the road, and now my call is to confess and repent and to believe the truth that they bear for me. My friends, listen and believe or risk missing the birth of Jesus in your midst. This Advent is unlike so many that have come in years past for so many different reasons. But in so many ways, this year's Advent is just as Advent has always been at its core, a season of waiting, of preparing, and of searching for the Christ child who is coming yet again. Luke tells us that the shepherds went on a similar journey, venturing into Bethlehem with very few clues as to what they might find. A newborn baby swaddled and laying in a food trough, not exactly picturesque. They knew they weren't looking for a well-furnished nursery or some important family with a newborn child, but instead something different, something lower, but something greater than what might be expected. Imagine for a moment, imagine what it must have been like, their search for the holy family that night. Wandering the streets, perhaps the smell of fresh flatbread or warm soup wafting through the windows, but that wasn't what they were searching for. Now animal droppings? That's a smell they would have known very well. That's something the shepherds would know something about. And as the stronger those smells got, the closer they knew they were. I imagine them approaching the cave or the stable or whatever it was and and seeing Joseph and Mary and this yet-to-be-named baby in the midst of cattle and donkeys and goats. The fleas that were biting Joseph and making him itch like crazy. The exhausted Mary running on pure adrenaline of new motherhood. The mess, the absolute mess of it all. The sense that fear and wonder were dancing in the air as a girl just survived childbirth in unclean, unsafe conditions. You know, we might wonder how, how nobody could let her in when when forcing her outside in these conditions was potentially a death penalty as childbirth was risky in those days in the best of conditions. We might wonder how someone could turn her away, how nobody could let her in, but the shepherds would not have been surprised. And when the shepherds see them, this fledgling family, this forgotten family, out of sight and out of mind in a town otherwise fast asleep, The shepherds see holiness and wonder that they would never find in a temple or on a throne. As do we expect Jesus 
rebellious little baby that he is? Do we expect Jesus, heralded by the poor and the oppressed, do we expect him to be found in the pristine suburban nativity sets like the many I have scattered throughout my home? Or is God calling us to something lower, but something greater? Do we smell the stable? Do we feel the fleas bite our skin? Have we found the holy family where God would have us, or have we demanded something more sanitary and safe? As we seek the Christ child, when we smell the stench of the turned away, when we itch with the sting of injustice, when we see a forgotten family for who they are, holy and wondrous, we will know that we are close. Like the shepherds, once we find the Christ child in this way, we become stewards of this kind of message, not just in our world, or not just in our words, but also in action. If we're going to worship an unhoused infant as our Savior, will we also advocate for those facing eviction or homelessness as a result of this pandemic and hold our elected leaders accountable in providing relief? If we're going to sing songs about shepherds and give thanks for their proclamation, will we also believe the proclamation of the poor when they cry out for increased wages and health care as a human right? If we're going to name Christ as Lord on Christmas, will we also commit ourselves to holy revolution in his name and hold Caesar accountable to the kingdom of God? Luke's gospel reminds us that once we find the Christ child where God would place him, we can't unsee it. We can't unhear it. We can't unsmell it. We can't unfeel it. We can't go back to the world as once we knew it. Luke says to us this morning join the revolution. Believe the shepherds. Find the Christ child. Because it's only the beginning. Imagine how God will move next. Amen.